Let us bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that is ours to come apart from this cares, from the cares of this life as a community of faith to worship you this morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, inspire us by your presence, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. On the screen, I have a photograph that was taken by the Hubble Telescope of the planet Mars, that is the fourth planet from the sun. And this was taken when the planet Mars was the closest to the Earth's orbit, uh, still 34 million miles. And there have been, for centuries, individuals that have been interested in the planet Mars. And in the last 20 years or so, there have been rovers that have been sent to the planet and this is a photograph that has been taken of the landscape of the planet of Mars. It's amazing how they can transmit an image from 34 million plus miles away. And in 1605, Johannes Kepler was studying the planet Mars orbit around the sun, and the math wasn't making any sense. And he came to the conclusion that the orbit of Mars around the sun was not a perfect circle, but rather it is an ellipse. And it came to be known as Kepler's law of planetary motion. And an ellipse is different than a circle. You can do this at home, kids. Uh, you can get two tacks and a piece of string and draw an ellipse. The difference between an ellipse and a circle is that an ellipse centers on two central points and a circle centers on one. And all of our planets in our solar system circle the sun in a perfect ellipse, centering on two central points instead of one. One scholar reflecting on Christian theology has come to the conclusion that much of the theological disagreements in the last 2,000 years of Christian theology can be solved and reconciled by not centering our theology on one central point, but rather on two. Let's go and talk about Christology. So this is an ellipse, two central points, and I took a class on Christology in my graduate studies, and when you look at the history of thinking on the nature of Christ, you have two things that seem to be contradictory. You have the, div div uh, can't speak this morning, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And when you look at the early thinkers and the theologians, uh, some of them came up with some Gnostic or Docetism teachings and they said, oh, Jesus is divine and he just appeared like he was human. In other words, he was not really human. And during the Enlightenment, other individuals came along and said, Jesus was just a human. Now, what do we have if Jesus is just a human? Uh, we don't have Christianity. If Jesus was divine but not human, then the plan of salvation could not work. And when we come to Christology, we need to have an elliptical approach. We need to appreciate both the humanity and the divinity and hold them in a tension and there is mystery and be okay with that. Say Jesus is human and divine. It's not either or, it's both and. 
Then we come to the whole theological thinking and discussion on whether it's about faith or reason. Is it about the head or is it about the heart? Is it about knowing God intellectually or is it about the experience? And people kind of gravitate to one pole or the other and sometimes someone will come along and say, hey, Christianity needs to be intellectual. We need to know God with our mind. And then someone comes along and says, no, you just need to experience him. It's about the emotions and the feelings. And the Bible brings these together and says, thou shalt love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's all of it. You can't say to your wife, love, honey, I love you intellectually. It'd be kind of funny to say, I love you emotionally, but not intellectually. She'd be like, what do you mean? You say, I'm conflicted. Oh, that'd be bad, okay? So it needs to be both, the heart and the head. You need some counseling if you go into that. All right, which, when one of the points becomes the circle of truth, we have what we call heresy, a partial truth that becomes a whole error. Even though each point in the ellipse emphasizes truth worth dying for, Arguments will never end until a person accepts the total picture of the truths emphasized in both points. There's a lot of these types of tensions in scripture, and we go back and forth on the pendulum. And in the last 2,000 years of Christian theology, in my studies, it can be summarized with one word, pendulum. Just goes back and forth in a reactionary biographical theology. In other words, it's not either or, it's both and. It's not the humanity or the divinity of Christ, it's both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. It's not either the head or the heart, it's both the head and the heart, and the same is true for faith and works. Now, I wanna be very sensitive this morning because uh, we have, in our own community of faith, uh, a history and in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, before I was born, there was a, an emphasis more on the side of works, more legalistic background. So we have a whole generation of Seventh-day Adventists that are growing up and growing out of a very legalistic background, and I call it spiritual abuse. And the challenge is that sometimes when I mention the, the word works, because of the history, um, it's easy for blood pressure to, to rise, right? I mean, how do you feel when you hear the word works? It's kind of like, and some people break out in hives and hyperventilate. No, I'm just joking. But you, you know my, what I'm saying is that we have this history. And the, the challenge is that right now, I believe, in our understanding of the gospel experientially, that many times you have a reactionary theology that goes back and forth. And that's why my ministerial director said that when you have conservative parents, they have liberal children. And then when you have liberal parents, sometimes you have conservative children, and that's kind of how it goes back and forth. Now, when we talk about faith and works, it's important for us to realize, first of all, we're not saved by our works, amen? We're Protestants, right? We don't believe in meritorious salvation. We don't earn our way to heaven. And the challenge is if we take a works emphasis, it becomes legalistic. We know that. How about if we take a faith emphasis and say works don't have any part of the Christian experience? 
We have very extreme versions of this where we say, hey, we don't have to keep the law anymore. We can do whatever we want. We can kill, steal, commit adultery, anti-nominalism, nominalism, can't say it right, but you know what I'm talking about. And then you have a faith emphasis to the negation of works, but the important thing, just like the humanity and the divinity of Christ, is to realize that there is a relationship between each one. There's a tension between the two. In other words, if you let God work in your life, there will be a visible change. There will be a visible change, and we'll be talking more about that. So today, we are talking about biblical balance, and we use this in our, our, our children's story this morning about this gentleman that walked across the tightrope using a pole, a 38-foot uh, pole that he used to walk across the twin towers or on a cable between the two t twin towers. He had both sides, on both sides of the cable, an equal amount of the pole. And that tension helped him stay right in the middle. In my second presentation, I'll be talking about the biblical concept of balance. Very difficult to achieve. It is a tightrope. The devil doesn't mind. He wants us to fall off on the right side or the left, but there is a tension between these two realities to help us in our Christian experience. Now, there's grace through the whole experience. I think my biographical history of my Christian experience has been a pendulum, swinging back and forth depending on the experiences that I've had. And by the grace of God, he can help us to stay centered in Christ. Amen? That's what he wants us to do. So for the next... Uh, three weeks, actually, caveat on that, this is the first part of a three-part series, and then next Sabbath we have a Mother's Day special, so you won't want to miss that. Uh, we have our men cooking for us for our fellowship meal, and uh, we'll have a special Mother's Day service put on, our by, um, put on by our Sabbath school divisions, and I'll be preaching a sermon, Mothers in Israel, or something along those lines, and so we'll take a pause. And then I'll have um, the second part of our series on faith and works on May 19 and then May 26. So it'll be a three-part series on faith and works, a theological reflection on that. And let's go very quickly and define our terms. What do we mean by faith? specifically in terms of salvation. We're talking about faith in what God and Jesus does for us and what Jesus does in us. These are two important realities. It is what Jesus does for us and what Jesus does in us. Let's talk about the first part. What does Jesus do for us. Psalms 32 verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. If you find a naked, dirty baby in Anchorage, what do you do? You cover and then you take the baby back home and then you give the baby a, a bath. You cover and you cleanse. The covering that God does for us, the robe of righteousness, is an external reality. Then after that, we go through a cleansing process, and that is an internal reality and is what God does for us and in us. It is still God's work. This is an important text in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, because you have both elements of what God does. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins, that's the covering, his robe of righteousness, and to cleanse, this is what God does in us, us from all unrighteousness. He does both by God's grace. He covers and he cleanses. It is his work, and this is what we mean by faith. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and in that wrought by his spirit working in and through us. So we have two prepositional phrases, the work of God for us and the work of God in us. They are important elements of what grace does through faith in Jesus Christ, the work of God for us and in us. So let's talk a little bit about works. What are works? Works are the result or the fruit of faith. That is the relationship. We're not saved by our works, but if God works in us, there will be a visible manifestation, a visible fruit of what has taken place. This is from John chapter 5, verse, or 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible says, bearing fruit in every good work. In other words, works are the natural of what God is doing in our lives. It is the visible manifestation. It is the visible evidence of what God has done. James chapter one, verse 27, this is an example of works to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Good works, ministering to the homeless, feeding the, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. These are all works that God does in and through us. And this is from Charles Spurgeon. He classifies works into the following categories. Works of obedience, works of love, works of faith, and acts of the common life. I just want to expound on it very quickly here. By works of obedience, Spurgeon means obeying the commands of Scripture Number two, works of love include both love for God and love for our fellow man with an eye to God's glory. And works of faith refer to all that we do in reliance upon God and his promises. By acts of common life, he meant whatever we do at home, at work, traveling, or on a sickbed, that we do all to the glory of God. So these are visible manifestations that God does through us. And here's the fundamental question. Do our works earn our salvation? No, they don't. And we just read that in our scripture reading, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. For by grace have you been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I think of that statement in the book Desire of Ages that says that all false religions are based on the premise that you can save yourself through your works. Meritorious salvation is the premise of all false religions. So works is not a means of salvation, and this is from Ellen White in the 1888 study materials, page 811. There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly 
repeated more frequently or established more firmly in the minds of all men than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus alone. Praise God. Nothing we do earns our salvation. Even our good works, it doesn't count for anything. There is no credit to our account. So there's no room for boasting in this equation. This is from John Piper. Our inheritance is not earned by our lived out righteousness, but belonging to the family of God and being an heir is confirmed by it. This is from John Stott. Good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its grounds or means, however, but as its consequence and evidence. Works are the byproduct of what God is doing in your life. There is going to be a visible change, a visible manifestation. Works are not meritorious. They do not earn the salvation. Works are the visible manifestations of what God does for us and in us. Now, this is an important point from faith and works about the working of God in and through us. And any works, this is from Faith and Works, page 23 and 24, and any works that man can render to God will be far less than what? Than nothingness. My requests are made acceptable only because they are laid upon Christ's righteousness. This is an important point in our Reformation heritage to recognize that even when God is working in and through our lives, it still needs the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't count for anything. So you can't say, oh, God is working in me, therefore there is credit. It still needs the righteousness of Christ. This is from First Selected Messages, page 344. Oh, that all may see that everything in obedience in penitence, in praise and thanksgiving, must be placed upon the glowing fire of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, even the good things that we do need the righteousness of Christ to be acceptable to him. They are not meritorious. There is no room for human credit in this process of salvation. So here's the question. If works do not earn salvation, then what is the purpose of works? Motivation becomes an important part of our Christian experience. You can do the same things for the wrong reasons. And I think that when we think of this relationally, it really helps us. I've used this illustration before, and, and uh, I'll mention it again. You know, if you go to your wife, and she says, honey, I'm very tired tonight. Can you do the dishes? And you're like, do I have to? And she says, of course you don't have to. And then you press her further, and you say, uh, are you going to divorce me if I don't? You say, oh, of course not. And then she said, you say, well, then I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Later on, you get to the evening and your wife says, honey, I'm, I'm very tired this evening. Do you mind taking out the trash or doing whatever? And you say, uh, do I have to? Is it going to be a divorce issue if I don't? And you say, no. How long is that marriage going to last? It's going to be very challenging. And sometimes we come to the Lord 
with a similar mentality. We say, Lord, is this a salvational issue? Have you ever asked that question? That's an important question to ask in terms of context. But if everything is, hey, is this a divorce issue? It becomes challenging. First John says that we do what he commands and do what pleases him. This is an important part of our relationship with God. But works also has another function. Here it is. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In other words, works is not for our credit. It is for God's credit. Furthermore, works do not benefit us per se, or the original purpose is not us, but it is for the benefit of others. And I have been in situations where the work of God in my life has been able to touch someone else's life, and they say, hey, I know that God exists because I see him working in your life. I think of this gentleman, Mr. Kim. He was in Korea, in the southern peninsula. There's a lot of things happening right now, but it was at a time of adversity uh, after the Korean War, and a group of guerrilla communists came to his door, and they killed his family. He escaped, and later on, he felt convicted to come back to his home. He knocked on the door of his home and met the leader of the communists that had killed his family. And he looked that man in the eye, and he said, Sir, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done. That man was so touched that he and his entire group of bandits gave their heart to the Lord Jesus. And he started a church in that community, later became the leader of the Korean Campus Crusades for Christ. What happened? That man saw a revelation of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and it led him to the foot of the cross. This is what God wants to do in each one of our lives. John chapter 5, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's not faith or works. It is understanding the relationship between the two. We're not saved by works. However, if we allow God to work in our lives, there will be a visible manifestation of the Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the power of Christ and for the potential of what you want to do in our lives. We pray that Jesus may be seen through a reflection of his image in our lives. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.